Good morning, everybody. My name is Andy Bernstein, and welcome to The Map, uh, the mental health and addiction podcast. We created The Map to have open and honest talk about the issue that is affecting one in five Americans' mental health and addiction. Uh, It's an important topic and one that we need to bring into the light. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, the one and only Willie Drinkwater, Hello, Willie. Hello. Hello. Guten Morgen. Guten Morgen. And the uh, great Kristen Perry Long. Hi-ho. Hi-ho. Time for roll call. All right. Oh, boy. Time for roll call. Willie, who are you? Uh, Who am I? What am I doing here? As we were talking about before, uh, I am a person in long-term recovery, uh, 35 years, I've also been in the field of uh, mental health and addiction for, for just over 32 years now. I teach for UMass Boston in the Addiction Counseling Education Program, and I have a private practice that I run out of an office up in Beverly at the Cummings Center. And you were uh, in the 80s, I was a stand-up comic, and I was a member of the Not Before Breakfast Big Mattress Players at WBCN, The Rock Ooh, of Boston. Big Mattress Players? That's a new one. Did yeah, you the jump on before... mattresses? No, well, no, the not before breakfast, big mattress players. And as we always used to say at the end of the show, at the creek down rise, if the good Lord's will, if no one pushes the little red button, we'll do it all over tomorrow between the hours of six and 10. On the you big sound night. like the, he- the geeter with the heat, the geeter with the heater. <laughs> That's We're going to take it. All right. And Chris, who are you? Chris. Chris. We- <laughs> uh, my name is Chris Perry Long. I am yep. a family educator for Aware Recovery Care, which is an in-home addiction treatment program. Uh, we are located in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, Florida, and most recently, Indi- Tokyo, Indianapolis. Okay. No, in, in, uh, okay. in Indianapolis. Um, I am a parent in long-term recovery uh, with two children um, who are in recovery. Gotcha. And you uh, are a very dedicated person who's been working on the front lines for a long time, both as a parent and obviously with your work with AWARE. Yes. Um, as for me, I've been in the media both on the radio and TV side for 20 plus years. Uh, I'm very passionate about helping to further the discussion about mental health and addiction, using media to do it. I first started Cross Check Radio with former hockey player Kevin Stevens and co created the map with Chris and Kimberly Walsh back in late 2019. And uh, before we meet our guest, Maureen Cavanaugh, let's catch up on a couple news items that I thought uh, we're going to do two today. Um, lie down, let me lie down. Um, we uh, just heard that there is a new dangerous street drug that is hitting America. It's called xylazine, and it's uh, better known as Trank, and it's a non-opioid sedative used in veterinary medicine typically with horses in Philadelphia where drug overdoses have spiked to historic highs. It was present in nearly one third of all fatal opioid overdoses in 2019 and a new study in the journal injury prevention published Wednesday suggests the opioid epidemic in the U S continues to evolve. We know that Um, it's different than ketamine and it's an animal tranquilizer that is used effectively in human medicine um, hasn't been approved by the FDA. So um, basically the effects are it depresses the central nervous system and respiratory systems and causes 
low blood pressure and a slow heart rate. And they say when it's combined with opioids, it's to create trank dope. Um, and so I'm bringing it up to inform people. I don't know if you guys anything know anything about this. Chris? I've never even heard of it. Yeah, no, it's it's the first time that I'm hearing of it. But but again, it, it just goes to um, to show that a desperate addict will take anything. It doesn't matter what the drug is if they think they can get a high off it. It's a funny story because like you don't really hear about people that that go into like the animal and use the animal stuff. But I did have um, a set of brothers that were shooting horse tranquilizers for a long time. And um, like, it was just, that's the only one I've ever heard of that is abusing um, animal. Actually. Tranquilizers. And actually, stuff. I know this guy, um, his name's Jack Titleman. He was a former FDA agent or uh, yeah. not an FDA uh, uh what was he? A DEA agent. And DEA. he, Jack. yeah, you met Jack. And Jack, yeah. Jack actually um, said that there's actually a big problem in the medical industry because he does um, uh, compliance and he goes and visits clinics and making sure that they're distributing medicine to, you know, they're following procedures, DEA procedures. And he said that uh, a lot of people are stealing medicine, they're breaking into vet clinics. To steal med- medicine, thinking that um, you know that it's gonna be the same drug, and it's not for like certain certain things. But yeah, it's a big problem in the vet industry, believe it or not. Yeah. So I think Diversion. I think it's I think it I mean Diversion. I think it's kind of like you know when the yeah when the um when the what were the patches was it oxy patches what were the patches that they were giving to people that fentanyl patches in the old days. Yeah, yeah, but they were something I forgot what they were. Lidocaine, like 20- fentanyl. No, it might have been fentanyl. I don't know, but no. it was like on very gabapentin. Huge- no, oh. no, no, no. It was very huge in the um, like down here in Florida. Um, people were stealing them, and I'm like, well, how can you abuse them, right? Like, because I was still learning, and they would soak mm. them, and then they would suck the drug out of it, and um, fentanyl. Then, yeah, because I know when we used to release people from inpatient psych and stuff, if they had a fentanyl patch on, we would. We would take it off before they left because uh, when I worked at Melrose Wakefield, they were on the sixth floor and sometimes you'd release somebody. And by the time the elevator got to the ground floor, they were knocked out on the bottom of the elevator floor because they had taken the patch off and sucked the gel out. Jesus. That's crazy. And then like a little tiny bit of fentanyl will kill. Like Yeah. A, I mean, that's just another whole topic for another a story. A whole other kettle fish. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so something to be aware of that's on the street. So um, the other thing that I wanted to uh, mention is, and I think we've talked about that, is that uh, this, you know, uh, recently a report came out that we have over 81,000 drug overdose deaths from June 2019 to May 20th, and it's the highest figure ever recorded in a 12-month period. Additionally, um, new research suggests that black communities are especially hit hard um, with the rollback of buprenorphine rule, um, which is um, which is happening. And then um, and then they are not clear what the Biden team will do to to cut the number of deaths. So, um, you know, as as have they appointed a drug czar yet? No, no. That's what I was going to get. That's what I. Okay. there's no drug czar. And, it's in his uh, hundred day. It's in his hundred day plan. I know that. Okay. 
Okay. It's cause... in his like Biden's hundred in his first hundred days. He has a. It's on his. It's one of his bullets on his agenda bullet list of things he wants to get done. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, in comparison to COVID, the 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 numbers are smaller. Um, and uh, if you could, if you could be Biden, right, and advise him, what would you guys, as people on the front lines, what would you like to see right now? going forward if i could if you could say you know what i really want to i really want them to do this in it's order nothing new that it's the, the the thing that needs to change is how we treat people that suffer from substance abuse like at the yeah, end of the yeah, day it's how we treat it yeah and i think that the, ahead, the, ahead, the the stigma began to come back when covid came in and i think we've, we've talked about this oh, before yeah. now now it's addicts and alcoholics it's not you know human beings with substance use disorders it's gone back it's gone back to those addicts and those those alcoholics and stuff and i mean the yeah yeah i mean the concern that i have too is is uh you know when we're talking about the you know the stim you know the the money about to be released because of covid and economic you know situation that we're in uh, you know, I have a concern because I know the, the last time when the stimulus money went out and the unemployment money went out, uh, a lot of drug dealers were really happy because they knew that they were going to be getting a chunk of it. You know, I mean, it was uh, it was tough. You're, you're in early recovery and all of a sudden you have, a you know, money in your pocket and it, it makes it really, really hard. Yeah, well, I think the other thing is, too, is like obviously there's no way to track it, but mm -hmm. two things, the spike in, in fatal overdoses with the yep. stimulus money. And mm -hmm. the turnaround in um, detoxes and programs, people AMA um, from mm -hmm. programs because they have that access to that money, you know, yeah. all of a sudden. So there was like, I remember like when those those last stimulus checks were coming out, not the 600 that just came out, but before that, like right around the holidays, I think, I don't even remember. Yeah. But there was this huge... And people weren't leaving individually. They were leaving after like 30 days and had moved to that next level of care. And they were living in the sober living, doing the IOP. And they were leaving in clusters. Yeah. Like they weren't leaving individually. They were leaving in clusters. And with the few people that I know that it happened to, like that they left in clusters, like yeah. one or two of those people overdosed and died out of those groups. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's insane. And Andy, another topic that we really need to bring to light is how DCF treats people with substance use uh, disorder. Uh, not what's today, today's Friday. I think it was mm -hmm. Wednesday. Um, a young mother took her life because she suffers, she suffered, and it's nothing new, suffers from substance use disorder. And DCF had taken their, her children, her two children. And <clears throat> they notified her that the baby who was three years old had been adopted and she couldn't cope with it. And she, she took her life. And, you know, I know firsthand how DCF had handled when I took custody of my grandchildren, how they treated my daughter. And I was, you know, it was a long time ago and I was still kind of unaware in on whatever, but it's still happening. Like DCF You're jaded over there. This too. They're jaded. I mean, when we we look to adopt, and you know, oh no, I was going to say I, when we we look to adopt, my wife and I, and um, we went to DCF, and they told us, "Don't think of you adopting as you're adding to your family. You're you're saving a kid from a bad situation." 
And we were like, okay, well, we're not qualified for that. <laughs> you know, we're like, like, we don't have the tools to do that. Like, um, but it was just such, such a negative. I mean, I know they were trying to paint a picture of what that isn't going to be a cakewalk, but they kind of talked us out of it a little bit. It was weird. The, the jadedness of I it I mean, all. at the at the end of the day, let's be real. I mean, Willie can attest to this in his profession, right? Uh, DCF workers are overworked, underpaid. They have a caseload that is a ridiculous amount. There's, there's not enough of them. There's no. not enough of them. Like, we're that's just another facet of this whole disease. Like, so now there are so many children that, and, and Maureen will be able to speak to this as well. There are so many children that have been left behind because they've lost their parents to overdose. And we don't talk about that. Like we don't talk you, about, you that. know, another major problem too, is like, you know, when you get the case managers with DCF and stuff too, I mean, you know, just cause you have a degree in social work doesn't mean, you know, addiction. Cause I've mentioned it here before you could go undergraduate graduate to any of the big colleges in Boston. And at both levels, you're only offered one course on addiction and it's an elective. It isn't even a mandatory. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing advertisements now that I've been calling people out on is that, you know, you, you'll see advertisements for people to become the director of an addiction pr program. And it says LIC as WLMHC. Never says LADC1, the ones that actually have a known background in the addiction field. So I don't know. I don't know. You know, we're still considered like, like, uh, you know, second rate rate among the master's level people, which really isn't fair. It's just not. But these advertisements, yeah, LICSW or LMHC, but but you never see or LADC1, which means you have a master's in a behavioral health science and you've really been schooled in addiction. So that's another problem that the yeah. the, the 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 education you know, the taking it to uh, uh, res the respect of the profession. Well, 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 even Harvard Medical School, you know, up until a few years ago, you could go four years at Harvard Medical School and uh, and they only offered you one 20 hour course on mental health and addiction. And it wasn't even required. It was an elected. Yet anyone with an MD after their name can write anything that's psychoactive. How does right. that work? You know, so w once the covid once everybody starts to get the vaccine and things come back to normal, Chris, I think you've mentioned this before. It's going to be an S storm of uh, dep depression and uh, PTSD and, uh, you know, overdoses and suicides. I mean, would you agree with that after, you know, um, because of the way people have gone through this or and it's happening now. Do you agree? Like it, it would. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm getting get clients that are bouncing inpatient now from anxiety over COVID and over the politics that are that's going on in the country. I mean, you know, my, my, my numbers have shot up for people that I have to refer to inpatient and to detox. What about you, Chris? Are you seeing? Oh, the 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 case, the cases that we're seeing. So in Massachusetts, we just became officially opened in September. And our cases are, we already have a hundred, I believe over a hundred um, people in our program hmm. fluctuating, like right. in, it's crazy. I mean, we have more than a hundred, but the mental health is more primary than the substance use. And, hmm. you know, um, there's nowhere for them to go. Like, you know, you send somebody to, uh, uh, I'm not gonna mention any names, but they give them five to seven days to stabilize, you know, for their mental health. And then they cut them loose. And then it's like, come on, we know that, that that's not enough. Like 
first of all, medicine is not, um, it's not going to be in their system to really show how it is affecting them. I mean, Willie, we have a mutual client that, mm. you know, that, that there's, they're, that they're not stable and, you know, no. society keeps throwing curveballs and, and uncertainties and they're mentally not mature. So now mm -hmm. you're, you're throwing a, a, a medicine on them that in their head is supposed to make them feel better, but there's no follow through. Like there's no, yeah. Yeah. you know, well, well, I mean, that's across, continuum of care. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's across the board too. I was on, uh, I belong to the private practice colloquium of the North shore. And I was reading last night from, um, you know, one of the NPCCSs uh, saying that, you know, there's such there, there's such an overload of demand on both therapists and, and prescribers that she, she's actually thinking of, uh, you know, if you if you want me to prescribe for you, you're going to have to have a therapist, which I think is common sense anyway, because sometimes, you know, the therapist should be in communication with the prescriber. So you can note if there's any changes going on, if medications changed and uh, but that isn't always a mandatory, you know, like, you know, here's your prescription and hey, best of luck. You know, that's why I, that's why I love aware, because we are 52 weeks. So we see and we work with all their providers like that's mm. part of our, what we do. We set them up with providers, but we also work with all their providers. So there, yeah. if there is a, you know, a change, we're on the phone with the providers. But the providers, some of them, they just don't they don't care. Well, so care. that's a great segue because we're going to go meet Maureen in a second. Yes. She's been waiting patiently in the green room. But yeah. before we talk, but I'm going to throw this question out to you is how can we, if you, if, how do you let people know that, um, like if we could say, um, you know, why do I care? Right. If I don't, if I'm not impacted this by this from a, um, personally or from a personal basis or a family basis, what could you say to people who say, well, uh, you know what? I don't have anybody who has a drug problem in my family and I don't have a drug problem. So why does, why is this relevant to me? Cause you're you indirectly impacted. How so? <laughs> I mean, in, in all areas of, in all areas of community and of, and of society. Right. Right. And it, and, and, and it's, and it can happen to anyone. So, hmm. right. And so we're going to talk, we're going to actually introduce Maureen so she can, we can get, we can free her from. The bondage put, of the green room. Yeah. From the, <laughs> from the green room. Set my right? people free. Right. Um, so let's meet Maureen Cavanaugh. She is an educator, a recovery coach, a public speaker, and the author of if You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. It came out in 2018. She also founded in 2012 Magnolia New Beginnings and the online peer support groups Magnolia Addiction Support. And she is also president of Magnolia Consulting Services, which is primarily involved with management, consulting for large and small nonprofit organizations and parent peer recovery coaching. Welcome, Morning. <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm gonna have to cut that down somehow or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could have. I could have even gone further. I, yeah. I wanted. No, I, didn't, I wanted don't. to do you justice, Maureen. Yeah. I didn't. Um, so before we get into um, the work you're doing uh, with Magnolia, um, would love to hear about your story and and how you, the book A Mother's Journey, which has gotten great reviews, by the way. Um, 
Yeah, um, but tell us about yourself and kind of your your uh, your story, if you will. Well, I'm like a lot of people came from a whole background of addiction and alcoholism in my family and decided that what I was going to do is move away from it, you know, so that it wouldn't touch me anymore, which now I know in retrospect, looking back, you can't you can't move away from genetics, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate. I think everybody in my family, I know everybody in my family had been impacted by addiction, um, had, you know, was either alcohol, drugs. And the people that weren't, it wasn't alcohol and drugs, it was food, it was, you know, it was something and it was, it devastated my entire family. So my thought was to get as far away from as possible from everybody. And I had four children and I'm plodding along in my life. And the easiest of my four children started to show signs of uh, an eating disorder. And we got right on that and, you know, thought that which we do what we do, right? We get the right people around her. We, um, and, she, you know, she seemed to be getting better. But what was happening is she had gone to her first year of college and the eating disorder was turning into a dependence on drugs and alcohol. Okay. So um, that got worse. And by the end of um, her first year in college, she had come home and said, Mom, I've been drinking way too much. And I tried a few things, including heroin. And I think I need help. And my head almost blew off because I really did not know. I thought she was drinking too much. But I had older children that drank too much in college and then didn't drink too much. You know what I mean? It was like it was a phase. So I was hoping that that's what was happening. But um, unfortunately, that's not what was happening. And she um, got like got her into an outpatient program. She was very open about the whole thing with me. And I think it because she came to me, she would always come to me. And that was um my uh, my um, failure to understand the power of addiction and the power of, of drugs and how because I was looking at my child as we all do you know I was looking at my the child that came to me and told me she had a problem the child that you know played soccer at eight and played softball and and sang in the choir and that's the that's who I was looking at even though she was telling me what was going on with her I wasn't hearing it really because I was looking at that child and thinking, we'll get through this. We'll get through this. Right. So it could never I, be her, never be her. Right. 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 And, she, you know, we were going to do this together kind of thing, which is so absolutely, you know, not what, not what happens. I mean, we certainly both went down a path, but we went down two very different paths. And as she would definitely say, I was far crazier than she ever was. Okay. And that's that's probably why uh, it was worthy of a book, because I was absolutely out of my mind and did. If I could just interject, I mean, that's something I'm always saying. You don't find a lot of people with mental health and addiction in long term mental facilities. That's where you find their families and friends. If they're not getting help for themselves, they end up crazier than their loved one that's using or doing whatever they're doing. So. And, you know, and Crystal probably can say this. She's working with families all the time. We if if the family doesn't get into recovery, we you can do your very best work on somebody and you line them up with the best and the best of everything. And they're gone for 60, 90 days. Oh, they've done a really good job and they come home to visit or they come home and we can screw them up in two seconds because we're not yeah. taking care of ourselves and getting changed. into recovery. Yeah. So they walk into the loony bin that they left, you know, and it's a well-intentioned loony bin, but it's still, you know, we're still doing things that are really, really unhealthy. Like codependency. 
I, I mean, if you read my book, I don't even know what to call it. I was truly, I really felt like I was going through this with her. And I kind of was in a very sick way, but it was not mine to fix. And I didn't have any control over it or power over it. So I was doing things we like- We don't realize that when we're in, when we're in the storm, we don't realize it. No, it's until we take- God, no. we So how do you address that? Out of the storm. So what do you do? Hmm. Like CODA, CODA meetings or- you know, the problem. I mean, there wasn't anything, you know, and the things that were out there, there was always the loudest voice in the room was always telling me I had to throw her out. Don't talk to her for three months. And when she's when she's three months sober, tell her to come back. I'm not doing that. And then in in the meantime, well, we're telling we're telling them to to, we're being told to throw them out. And, you know, on the mutual Facebook page that we had met at, like there's all these pages. Oh, my, my son just died. Oh, my daughter just died. And they're telling us to throw them out. And it's like more, our moral compass is, you know, I can't do that. But on the same token, allowing them to live at home and not change the environment and not help them find, you know, their road, we're slowly killing them anyway. So you're stuck in this cycle where you're getting it from all these different directions. Your, your loved one is sick and suffering and there's no support. Right. And then when the support comes out, it's so overwhelming and so fluffy that you're like, that's not me. That's or not my so kid. like a, like a recipe to break bread. I mean, you know what I mean? This is we're not bread. Our family members are not bread. Our family members are whoever they are. And our families are whoever we are, you know. So there's not one right answer for everybody. And that's what no one wants to say, because then that that opens the conversation of, we don't really know what to do, but I know what worked for me. And that's what I, when I was going through this, I decided I am going to become the person that I needed when I was going through this. So I went about the business of educating myself as, as much as possible and create, you know, start maintaining these groups, which Chris was part of in the beginning, in the very beginning to try to have a different perspective and to, um, to connect people, to support people, and to educate people. And we're not doing that typically. What we're doing is we go into a room, we all feel sorry for each other, and then we go home. Well, that wasn't helpful to me. And then there were other groups where you would go in and they would tell you what they thought you should do, like bread. And that wasn't working for me. So what I tried to do is is have as much education around me as possible. And I work with families now, and I also uh, run Zoom, starting these Zoom meetings. I do trainings. I'm a NADAC approved education provider. I'm teaching at North Shore. I'm teaching the family perspective at North Shore. So I'm trying to let people know what families go through and for professionals, because all too often when I was going through this with my daughter, I would have a 23 year old kid telling me what I needed to do. That's if I got anybody because in she was in over 40 different treatment centers, walked in over 40 different times, not different. Sometimes they were the same over 40 different entries into treatment, 13 overdoses that brought her to the hospital blue and dead, um, probably twice that many that somebody had Narcan. And then I would go to the, tra- I'm begging for help and there's no family programs. And I would have like some 24, 25 year old kids telling me what I should do. And I would look at them and I think, you don't even have a cat. Why are you telling me to do these things? You live with your mother and you don't even have a pet that you take care of. And you're telling me what I should do with my, my child, like she's bred. And I think, well, I think speaking of the, like the whole family side of it, right. So 
our daughter's stories are very similar in that, you know, they went in and out of treatment and whatever, like, you know, I, I don't even, I don't even want to try to figure out how many times my daughter. No, overdosed. let's not do that because right, it just it, makes it, me. Yeah. Yeah. We, it, we can't change it. And that's like how I live. But I will tell you my first aha moment, right. Was when my daughter was in a treatment facility in Florida. Uh, she had been pulled out of a, um, she had been pulled out of a trap house uh, down in South Florida. A what's, really, a trap, really what's a trap house? So a trap house is exactly what it is. You're trapped in the cycle, right? So okay. she had a good insurance policy. So what was happening was the, the, this particular, not the one that she got pulled and put into, but this particular uh, treatment facility would get her well and give her a little bit of money and then put her in their, their sober living, which had no electricity, no running water, an extension cord running from the drug dealer's house across the street to give them enough to charge their phones and whatever else. That's a trap house, right? She was in that trap house. She got pulled out. She got, she got dragged out by her hair, literally kicking and screaming because she was so addicted and she didn't want to give it up. And they put her in this treatment center. And she went in and she was like, you know, all like typical and I got invited down for my first family weekend my first and I was like what a waste of time I went down and at that point I was kind of like in a point in my life where I thought I knew everything like I I had I figured it out like you know everybody's told me to kick my kids out everybody's told me to do this and that's what I'm doing and it's going to work and I went and I sat in this room for a family weekend and the the therapists they discussed the 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 curve and the brain and all this stuff. And, and it was like, it was interesting. I was, I was picking up what they were putting down, but then they allowed the kids to speak and the kids, it was like my first aha moment. And the kids said, Hey, when I get arrested, don't come bail me out. When I go to treatment, don't buy me new socks and underwear and cigarettes. If I tell you I'm going to leave, don't be threatened by that because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to manipulate you to get whatever it is that I want. And as long as you manipulate me, I'm not going to deal with my problems. And I was floored because for the first time, I felt like it was the first piece of truth, like raw, real truth. So part of this whole thing that they did with this family weekend is you get a one-on-one with a therapist and your loved one. So five minutes before my daughter told me she was leaving, she's like, I'm leaving. And I'm like, okay, why? And she's like, cause this isn't for me. And I was like, I was pissed. I was like, whatever. So I go in to treat this, this therapist appointment already with my mind made up. Like, this is a waste of time. My kid's going to leave anyway. I went in like this, right. With my body language therapist goes, what's wrong. And I said, um, well, my daughter just told me that she's leaving after I leave. And she looked right at my daughter and she goes, are you leaving after your mom leaves? She's like, no, I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> I think I know which therapist you're talking about. Oh, too. yeah. Big, heavy set woman. Ooh, she's I, badass. She was, oh, I do, adore. She's yep. actually in the book. Yeah, she's yeah. actually. She's a book. badass. She's a badass. So anyway, so we did the mm. session. I left. Two hours later, my daughter left. But the point is, is that she didn't pick up. She hasn't picked up since. Um, and how have whatever. you changed? How have both of you changed now? Because you talked about mm. your daughter hasn't picked up. What have you done? How have you guys adjusted your behavior? You ladies have adjusted your behavior now. Mm. It was a a long, long path. So um, 
I mean, the book is the book is my story. It's a memoir. And um, of course, it has her story in there, too. But you can read the book and see um, the, the transformation of somebody who was just going to fix it for her, mm. then somebody who was going to fix it with her, and then somebody who realized they couldn't fix it and they needed to fix themselves. Mm. So, I mean, I think that that's it, it. That's really what the book what the book's about. Um, of your transformation. Yes. I yeah, mean, that's your what transformation. Yep. And because, but you also see through the book, you know, uh, her ability when allowed to fix herself happens. So, you know, in counseling families, and it's not counseling because I'm not a counselor, but in, in our education that AWARE provides, you know, um, it's allowing the families to recognize that they can't fix their loved ones. Like that's a really big pill to swallow. I didn't cause it. I can't control it. I can't control it and I can't cure it. And I can just walk beside you on all these different processes, but to stop picking them up and, and to stop putting the band-aids on and not allowing them to heal themselves. That's, that's where the change begins. When you start to allow them to have the consequences, you know, um, it's hard, man. It's and really look, it, hard. Looks it looks different for everyone too. So yeah. it doesn't necessarily, I, I work with people all the time that say, you know, my one line in the sand is I will not tell them to leave the house. And, and that's okay. And, and I'm, I'm good with that, but there's things that you're going to need to do then. You're going to need to keep Narcan in the house. You're going to probably, you know, want to do a lot of other things. Maybe you want to take the doors off the hinges and replace them with um, with shower curtains on a tension rod because you want to be able to get in there. And if you you're okay with living like that for temporarily, hopefully, then then let's put all these things in place so that no one dies and 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 you have as much. Um, control over the situation as possible since it's in your house but you have to know if somebody's going to be using you may walk in there and is more people i think die in their own bedroom than die in the street because you know they have the the privacy to do that and no one's watching them so just make it so that someone's watching them if that's the way you want to live i personally couldn't live like that but mm -hmm. i'm also not going to tell anybody how to live i'm not i'm just going to support whatever they decide with education and with facts and with science. So that's right. kind of what, and that's kind of what the Magnolia, the trainings I do and the, the meetings that I do look like. We start out with 20 minutes, a um, 20 minute module on um, something related to family recovery. So maybe it's post-acute withdrawal syn syndrome we talk about for 20 minutes. Then we have a meeting and then we end it with some kind of self-care that somebody can take with them into the rest of their week. So it may be meditation and then some information on how to find other meditations, but whatever it is, that's kind of the format of our meetings. And um, we just started them not too long ago and they've been really going well because I think that's what I needed. I know what I needed. So I try to share now that I've, I'm out of this for the last three and a half years, three, you know, almost four years, thank God that I have the space in my head to be able to take a million classes, to get my counseling license, to do all these things. So I'm, um, I'm trying really hard to change things. I mean, my next plan is I applied to PhD programs because in policy, because my, my 
one of my master's degrees is in policy. And I am I want things to change. We're not taking care of our families. We're not doing what we need to be doing. We're not offering people the very simple things that they needed for a very long time, Magnolia New Beginnings, up until recently because of how difficult it's been with donations, provided sober living scholarship, sober living scholarships as part of the nonprofit in a very kind of in the box way. It had to be referred from drug court, Department of Corrections or a mass health treatment center, one person in the treatment center, usually the clinical director who knew that this person had been there maybe 17 times. And um, this was their 18th time walking in and everybody's like, what happened to John? He's a totally different person. You know, that feeling of that shift. And then, then on top of that, if not for this, a scholarship that person, this person would be going to the street because we have no place else to put them. So those are the people that we gave scholarships to. Yeah, let, let me back up for a second. When you, you know, from a, a parenting standpoint, because I, I, I know this from a parent perspective, it couldn't have been easy to, to change behavior, right? In in the mm-hmm. way that, right. So my question is, is. Um, how prevalent was the is denial in all of this? Is it is it <laughs> really? I know I it's a dumb. It's not a dumb question no. because no, because that's no, but... sometimes that's what keeps us going though. Because if mm-hmm. you have a child that's dying twice a week, you have to be in a little bit. I always call delusional optimism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alternative you know? facts. It'll be different this time. Yeah. Yes. And you know what? But sometimes I think that's what kept her going, too, because I was like, yep, okay, new day. Today's Wednesday. You can do it on Wednesday. Couldn't do it on Tuesday. I saw that. But uh, you can do it on Wednesday. I'm behind you. I love you. I believe in you. Where everybody else, I mean, people close to me started saying, Maureen, you really have to, like, realize that this is not probably not going to end well. And I was like, you don't know my daughter. You don't know me. And you don't know what's going to happen. And I think that, you know, is part of the reason. And I know Chris did that, too. She just kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And it's hard. It was hard. But the what's the alternative? Because and I know I work our, relation, our lives and our relationships become destroyed. And we don't we're just as sick as they are. And we don't even realize it until somebody says, wake up. Well, I, and I got to the point where I could still feel that way, but realize I I still had to, I had a life to live and I had other people around. And I got to that point where Mm -hmm. I realized I couldn't control it, but I could always be there and be the cheerleader and always, always, always let her know how much she was loved. And um, from what she tells me now that that was probably the best thing that I did. All the crazy wasn't helpful. I was going to ask. So, okay. So, so now you know, so you write the book and you, um, I'm assuming these are the things you cover in the book. She a was lot three of- days out of her last treatment center when the book went to the publisher. So I, ha- when the book, when the book left my hands, I should say. Um, so uh, I had a literary agent that was, okay. uh, so when my, when the book left my hands, she was three days out. I had no reason to believe really that that was the last time. It looked no different than a lot of the other times she left treatment. What's stuck this time? It, it's it's cumulative, you know, and we know that. And I always tell people, they'll oh, they wasted another six months, or we waste. 
No, it, it all builds on. It it's builds. the journey, the process of it, and right? That like is so important because, I mean, it does with all of us, right? It, it did with my recovery. I'm a totally different person than I was 10 years ago. I mean, you just, don't, you just don't know what's going to hit. You know, I mean, I always t- t- tell the story about a colleague of mine who went through 171 documented detoxes before he got sober. And if you ask him what was so different about 171 as opposed to the first 170, he'd say, well, you know, I, I think I got to a point where I was actually hearing what people were saying to me. You know, when you yeah. get pain's a great motivator when there's more pain, when there's more pain in not getting into recovery. You know, I mean, it it takes it takes often times I'll say to someone, you know, if you could put 10 percent of the energy into your recovery that you did in keeping it going, then you'd have it made. But you have to but want that. But yeah, you have to want it. But that's also you, Willie, in your experiences as a parent. It's a very different experience because mm-hmm. we haven't experienced the pain that our loved ones have gone through, that, that our kids are yeah. going through. And yeah. it goes it goes against. And I think like I know, like when I tell parents that, like, you know, it goes against our moral compass that we can't fix our kids. Like it's mm-hmm. that's you know, these are our babies. We're supposed to be able to take them to the doctors. We're supposed to be able to, you know, nurse them back. And we can't. And you know, I think one of the things that I always say, you know, I'm like, are you behind your kid pushing them into treatment? Are you in front of them pulling them into treatment? Have you tried walking beside them, you know, and, and seeing where it goes and, you know, watching the transformation of allowing, you know, people to do that is it's hard. It's really hard. And like, I know, you know, when my daughter, walked out of treatment, I figured, you know, here we go again. I'm going to get the, can you send me five bucks? Can you buy me a pizza? Can you, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and it never happened again. Like she struggled. Don't get me wrong. I I don't know. I, who knows what the final thing, there was no final thing. There really wasn't. It it just stopped. Mm. And, uh, you know, thank God it stopped. But I always tell people the story, story of the title of the book is if you love me. And one night she had come home after, um, she was doing really well and she had a group of friends and she was living in sober living after treatment. And she came home. Um, she, she went out on a run and her friends, her friends found her at three o'clock in the morning, brought her home. She comes into my house. She's sitting on the kitchen floor and she's a, she's a mess. She's dirty. She's, she's crying. She wants to kill herself. And um, I, then she wanted to kill me briefly. And I looked at her and I said, honey, I love you so much and you're going to die. And she looked at me and she said, if you love me, you'd let me die. And that's where the title of the book comes from. But I think also it was when I first I, I mean, I I knew, but when I really, really understood how much pain she was in. How how is she today? And and a question is being part of the book. How does she own this? I'm assuming, um, you know, like how how is she able to, you know, does she feel like, um, you know, there's a label on her? How how is she dealing today with? your book and kind of what, where is she today? Well, she had some, some public things that would come up if somebody Googled her. So she always felt like, um, I'm mean, not always, but I think she feels like it, it's best to get, she's better to get out in front of it with this recovery story. And I agree with her. So she, she talks, you know, she's spoken with me. We've done radio and all kinds of things. She's really proud of the book because 
I mean, nobody wants to expose every crap, you know, crummy thing that ever happened to them in their whole life. I remember when that book came was delivered, I looked at it and I thought to myself, oh, my God, what did I do? Right. I was going to ask, okay. like, it's a yeah. very revealing, right? Because I'm not the kind of person that likes to talk about um, things that happened to me. Anyhow, I was very, always very quiet until this happened. Now people wish I would be quiet, I'm sure. But I see the impact and she sees the impact, too, of this book on people. Um, I've had people that read it in prison and it changed the way they thought about their families and they, they told their families to read it. And now they're, now they're, the families are in, you know, have come back together and they've changed. I mean, the stories that I hear because of this book and that she hears too, because people contact her as well. It's um, I mean, it's just one of those stories would have been worth writing it. We always hear about, you know, the battle back, right? We hear about the courageous battle back and all the things that, that, that these kids lost and how they got their lives back and everything else. And we very rarely hear the parents' perspective, the parents' oh. battle back, right? right? The mom and dad's battle back, what we go through. Like we all know it as a community and those support pages, we all know what we're all going through, but our loved ones don't know what we're going through. They only know that they've hurt us. They've, they've disappointed us. They've let us down. Like they only know the, the and they only know like what they know. And they don't know in the, the background, what, no matter what they're doing. And she did plotting, but no matter what she did, I don't care about any of that stuff. All I wanted was her back. And so this, she tells me whenever she struggles, so she's having a hard time, she rereads part of the book. So she said that book has kept her sober a lot of times when she was struggling because she, it reminds her of everything that we've, that, you know, she's gone through and I've gone through. She's amazing. I mean, what's she, her life like today? Oh my God. So she's, this might, I love to talk about what she's doing today. She's just so awesome. So she's, um, went back to school. She graduated from a program that she was in, but decided, I don't want to do that. So she went back to school again. She had had some college credits. She's um, going to school. She just passed her test to get into either nursing school or she wants to be a respiratory therapist. She's working in a hospital. She just bought a brand new car. I mean, she's awesome. We were out dress shopping last night. And that is not something that as much as I prayed for her to be okay, I never in a million years could have imagined that she would be so beyond okay. I mean, not like probably a better person and more goal- you know, goal focused on her goals and stronger than she would have been hadn't she gone through all this. Not that I would ever wish this on anybody. I was going to ask because I, I guess, and Chris, you guys, can, you, you ladies, can both speak to this as far as does age have anything to do with it? Like you're young and you start to like absolutely like they thought they could do one substance mm-hmm. if they didn't and didn't do it, and it always led back to you know that substance that would take them out. So it's yeah, an interesting point, point, Chris, also, as you're talking about drinking and alcohol. And and we know just from the numbers alone that, you know, we're, we're always on, on focus on opiates, 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 but more people die annually from alcohol related than they do from opiates. I mean, yeah. so it's one of those things because it's legal, you know, so to speak. And we're what about doing we? that with marijuana now, too. But I mean, you know, we, we know that the brain's not developed fully until about 24, 25. So I do right. think yeah. that the impact of that and, and in the decision-making process, which gets, you know, co-opted by all the drugs and that's not your brain, their brain's not fully even able to make decisions, which is why, you know, you can't rent a car until you're 21 or 24 or something like that. 
the um the rental car companies aren't stupid because they know that young people are not good decision makers. And like guys that. are worse than women too because our brains are not <laughs> just Well, that's a whole nother subject. Right? I mean, like, I, I know. That's not like, nerves. That's not nerves. No, but I knew, like, when I was 30, right, I didn't get my, my act together until I was 31, right? Because um, I just couldn't, I mean, I couldn't process it all yeah. at 31. And then it was kind of like, all right, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to go out, and I don't want to be the party guy. And I don't, I just... I think that's like that natural progression that people that don't have a problem, right. You know, that don't have an an addiction that, that they go through that. But if you're doing drugs from the time you're 16, you don't go through that natural progression and your brain doesn't develop like that. So I don't know. You're altering pathways of the brain too. Right. Right. And I don't, I don't know if that's the case. And I've worked at uh, as a special ed teacher at the recovery high school and I've seen people get it. You know, and I've seen them not go back. I actually just sat with one of them the other day. So sometimes they do get it young. You know, I just think that that's it. Like, you know, they're not bred. You know what I mean? This is just right. different. Everybody's different. So there's a possibility I, that somebody at, at a young age could realize this is not the path I want to go. And um, and, the, the you know, the, the consequences already have been too much. I don't want any more of them and work really hard to not go back. How important are friends, uh, you know, their friends with this, like the, the peer pressure? Because like I'm seeing now, like weed has become so acceptable right now. And so many parents I know are like, oh, yeah, he smokes weed. Are they? He smokes well, I, weed. I like it's just remember- weed. Yeah, yeah, I like to remind people the THC levels that that maybe they were exposed to and the THC levels that their children are being exposed to. And Ruth Pody from um, P-O-T-E-E from out in Greenfield, I think her website is ruthpody.com. She's got video after video after video, but she's got a great one on there about um, the effects of of weed on on the adolescent brain. And I, I would encourage people to sit down and listen to that with their kid so they right. can both learn. Do it it's not harmless, but, but people yeah. are so, I see it all the time. It's like, it's so diminished. Like, oh, it's, you know, oh, it's just weed. It's like, no, it's not your father's marijuana anymore. No, no. I mean, the stuff that we had in the 70s compared to now, I mean, the, the stuff now is 100 to 500 times stronger in levels of THC. Right. You know, I mean, I get the clients that, well, I, you know, I smoke for anxiety and it's like, oh, okay. I mean, I meet people where they're at. I try not to leave them there and stuff. But, you know, I mean, you know, oftentimes what happens is they find they need, you know, increasing amounts every day in order to get through their anxiety, which is one of the tenets of addiction, increasing amounts in order to get the same desired Mm -hmm. effect. And then it's like on the days they don't smoke, they have more anxiety than the reason they were smoking in the first place. Okay, well, Cannabis probably isn't a good choice for you then with your anxiety. It's just it creates not. psychoses, right? My, I, I have a family member. Uh, I've seen that often with, with college mm-hmm. students. They go, they go off to college and they start smoking 24 hours a day. And the next thing you know, uh, there's some paranoia going on. There's some delusional thinking going on because, you know, it isn't, it isn't recreational. It's become a way of life. Especially right. with the edibles, because then they're taking mm. more than they even realize that they're taking. You know, and yeah. it never yeah, smoked the, that much. Yeah, yeah, they take an edible and they think it's going to be an instant in effect. And in f- f- 15 minutes or so, it still hasn't kicked in. And now they're saying, well, I need to take more. And then the next thing you know, you got somebody that doesn't even know their name. 
Yeah, know? because God knows I never ate a piece of a chocolate bar in my entire life. So I can't yeah. imagine that. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mar- Maureen, tell us um, in our in remaining few minutes, and you've been great, and I, I hope you'll come back on again um, down the road if we didn't scare you away. But uh, um, but tell us about Magnolia and kind of the um, some of the work you're doing with, with it uh, a little more specifically and how people can get in touch with you. Sure. Um, so um, Magnolia New Beginnings is a, is a nonprofit, 501c3. Um, right now, we're not doing scholarships. I hope that will kick back in when things get a little bit um, financially, get a little bit better in the world. Um, but what we did with that with Magnolia was sober living scholarships and parent support. We have parent support groups on Facebook. We have about twenty five thousand members on Facebook. No way. And, yeah, uh, between the open and closed pages. And then I have, um, I run two uh, recovery groups, uh, Wicked Sober and Magnolia, we do recover. And we have a little over 10,000 people on those too. Lots of information, lots of meeting information, all that. That's all on Facebook. Then we have meetings twice a week uh, on Thursday nights and Sunday nights on Zoom meetings, virtual meetings. Um, and they can find that on um, magnoliarecoveryresources.com and they can sign up for that. Um, Then I personally do family recovery coaching. I work with families to hopefully get them to the point where um, they're taking care of themselves and they're educated and knowledgeable about what's going on with their loved one and can kind of decide where they end and their loved one begins in an informed way. Um, I'm a teacher, so it's a lot of teaching. I'm a recovery coach trainer too. So I've incorporated lots of the Recovery Coach Academy into those conversations. And, um, and I became a recovery coach, not because I wanted to be a recovery coach, but because I wanted information all in the Mm. same spot. Mm. So now, and I also do trainings, I'm a NADAC approved education provider. So I do trainings all over the country. Well, (laughs) if it wasn't. Yeah, I know what you're talking about there, except for the COVID. Yeah. And I, um, so I do trainings for, um, for facilities too, so they can learn how to create family programs. Okay. You know, and these family meetings, which come with a workbook. So I have 26 different lessons and then they're flipped. So we have that first 20 minutes is uh, that educational module, which we're leaving out of the family meetings, hoping that somehow people will just, I don't know, I get it by osmosis. Maybe they'll stand next to somebody that knows somebody. And Maureen, I just have to ask uh, Maureen quick, 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 too. I'm up on the North Shore, as you know, too. I'm up in Beverly and stuff. And what are the unique things when I... You know, when I got to the North Shore, I felt like I was back in Connecticut again, where I grew up, because on the North Shore, there seems to be this prevalent attitude. There's no alcoholics. They're just problem drinkers of those that can't hold their liquor, you know, because we're <laughs> in the middle of, you know, country club and yacht club scene. So, no, you know, they, they just they just don't know how to. I think alcohol is downplayed a lot on the North Shore until it becomes a major problem. It's it, you what know, do you think? I yeah. lived in Marblehead for 20 years and, um, and that's where, oh, so you of, know, Maddie's okay. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> and that's where my story was set was, was really in Marblehead. And I am not always kind to Marblehead because they were not always kind to me. And I wound up, you know, I wound up uh, starting the door knock program in Marblehead with Marblehead Police Department. So I, I love Marblehead now, but we had, yeah, yeah, our, with, we had our differences, you know, but, but it was I, but just, I used to, I used to say that you begin your drink and you're at Maddie's and then down the road when you're going broke, then you're at the Riptide. You know, it's That's just, exactly uh, the progression. Like That's the yeah, exactly yeah. progression. Uh, 50 cent Eric That sounds yeah. tremendous. Oh, 
I'd love it. It sounds like a hole in the wall, real, real authentic. Um, Maureen, are you um, sticky the floors. book? The book? Mm, yeah. Yes. Where can people buy the book? Yes. Yes. I, I I I would assume it's still in bookstores. It was in every all bookstores. It's it's published by Macmillan Henry Holt, so it's a big publisher, so it's available everywhere. Um, it's on Amazon. Amazon's probably the easiest way to get it. Um, the Audible version, which I read, was runner-up for 2018 Memoir of the Year. And uh, the, my other runner-up was Michelle Obama. That's probably like the thing I- Awesome. If I'm ever going to brag about anything, that's it. Because if I'm anywhere next to Michelle Obama, I'm, I'm good, you know? I love where, where are you from originally? I, I'm hearing a New Jersey, New York, New York accent. New York, yeah. What part? Uh, Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island. Love it. Love it. I was going to wear my Mets hat today just for the uh, <laughs> the sake of, uh, yeah, because I'm hearing it. I'm like, that's not a Boston accent. No. Um, well, thank you for thank you for coming on. Oh, it's been great. And thank you uh, for doing what you do. Oh, thank you. And we'll we'll love, like I said, we'll love to have you back. And uh, yeah, and that's thank our show. It's a cup of coffee. Coffee, cup right, Maureen? It's a coffee. 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 coffee and I drive a car. Car. <laughs> yeah, and how much better is Boston, uh, New York pizza than Boston pizza? No comparison. The right. Uh, Sorry. Although, although I do, we, we do have a local pizza place around here. They do the New York thin slice, and they really do it do it well. Uh, so you're going to need to tell me where slices. that is. Yeah, where is that? Because uh, yeah, Lisa's Pizza. Lisa's Pizza. All right. all right. There's a bunch of them all over the place. I need pizza. I love right. pizza. Friday in our house You're is pizza day anyway. Oh, <laughs> tremendous. All right, kids. No, hey, down listen. here it's chewy and soft. Uh, you would think they would have better given that it's like how many uh, New Yorkers come to yeah. uh, Florida and become Boca Babes down in like Snowbirds. Florida. Snowbirds. That's what we call them. Snowbirds. Snowbirds. All right. Yeah. Well, that's our, sh- that's our show for the week. Thank you, Maureen Cavanaugh <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, from Magnolia and, and of course, to Mike Weber back in Mission Control. Thanks, Mikey. I've- Thanks, hey, Mike. Thank you, Michael. And uh, Chris. I'm going to go sit by the pool, so I miss you Goodbye. guys. You're dead to me now. Uh, <laughs> you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're waiting to see if we get some more snow. Okay, yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Well, that's our show for the week. Please visit us on Facebook.com the map 2020 but we got to change it now to 2021 yes no because we were founded on 2020 oh. 20 i know 2020 so we'll be back we'll be back next week yeah i'm saying that like yeah maybe yeah, no maybe, maybe. maybe. Yeah. have a good weekend everybody we'll all see right, you next yeah. weekend all. Bye. You. bye 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 now do up the music